0: episode 100 of the Burning Bush podcast where we share the message of the Bible while enjoying a good cigar. Hope you're all doing well and I'm glad you've joined me. And today we begin a new journey reading through the New Testament book of Matthew with commentary from the notes in the uh, Charles Spurgeon study Bible. And I'm smoking the Rocky Patel vintage 1999 Connecticut Robusto Five and a half by 50. So let's get on over to the Rocky Patel website and see what they have to say. The 1999 Vintage showcases the oldest Connecticut shade-grown wrapper on the market. This iconic cigar falls into the mild category. Truly one of the finest sticks on the market today. It's a must-have for any humidor. And it's won a 91 rating from Cigar Snob, a 91 rating from Cigar Journal, and an 88 rating from Cigar Aficionado. And here is a list of the Vitolas: Minis, four and a quarter by 32; Juniors, four by 38; Petite Corona, four and a half by 44; Perfecto, four by 48. Robusto five and a half by fifty, Robusto glass tube five by fifty, Churchill seven by forty eight, Churchill glass tube seven by forty eight, Toro six and a half by fifty two, Toro Tubo six by fifty, Torpedo six and a quarter by fifty two, and a 60, 6 by sixty. That is the Vintage 1999 Connecticut by Rocky Patel. So let's go ahead and get into our reading of the book of Matthew. Uh, But beforehand, let me give you a little background on uh, Charles Spurgeon. If you're a Christian and a cigar smoker, then you're probably familiar with the fact that Charles Spurgeon was known for his love of cigars. And when I was trying to decide where to go next on the podcast, I I feel that God led me to begin reading through the Bible using Spurgeon's notes. So before we get started, let me give you a little background on Charles Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers, in an age when Great Britain had many legendary preachers. The 20th century looks to the realm of sports, cinema, and music for its superstars, but the Victorians idolized their religious leaders. London street sellers sold cheap statuettes of popular preachers, and none were more popular than those of Spurgeon. In his 20s, Spurgeon pastored the largest megachurch in Protestant Christendom, London's most cavernous buildings could hardly accommodate his crowds, and one of them even collapsed. American tourists returning from England were greeted with two questions. Did you see the Queen? And did you hear Spurgeon? Spurgeon regularly spoke to crowds of five and 6,000 without the aid of microphones. During the 37 years of his ministry in London, 1854 to 1891, over 14,000 members were added to the congregation he pastored. Spurgeon was one of the most widely read authors of the century. During his lifetime, his sermons were published each week, and even after his death in 1892, his publishers continued for another quarter century printing sermons that had not been published. Some have estimated that over a hundred million copies were sold in his lifetime alone, and many are being reprinted in our generation. In 1874, Dr. George F. Pentecost, a Baptist pastor from America, visited Spurgeon's Church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and Spurgeon had him sit on the platform for the evening service. Spurgeon preached strongly and plainly upon the necessity of giving up sin in order to succeed in prayer, and he spoke against the seemingly unimportant little habits many Christians practice that keep them from true fellowship with God. After concluding his sermon, he asked Dr. Pentecost to speak, suggesting especially that he apply the principle he himself had declared. It is probable that Dr. Pentecost did not know that Spurgeon smoked. At any rate, he applied Spurgeon's principle by telling of his own experience in giving up cigars. He said, One thing I liked exceedingly the best cigar that could be bought. Yet he felt the habit was wrong in the life of a Christian, and he strove to overcome it. The habit, however, proved so strong that he found himself enslaved till after much struggling, he took his cigar box before the Lord, cried desperately for help, and was given a complete victory. He told, with much praise to God, how he had been enabled to defeat the habit. Throughout his words ran the idea that smoking was not only an enslaving habit, but that the Christian must look on it as sin. We must assume that if ever in his lifetime Spurgeon was embarrassed, it was now. He arose and stated, Well, dear friends, you know that some men can do to the glory of God what to other men would be a sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. If anybody can show me in the Bible the command, Thou shalt not smoke, I am ready to keep it, but I haven't found it yet. I find ten commandments, and it's as much as I can do to keep them, and I have no desire to make them eleven or twelve. The fact is, I have been speaking to you about real sin, and not about listening to mere quibbles and scruples. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And that is the real point of what my brother Pentecost has been saying. Why, a man may think it is a sin to have his boots blacked. Well, then let him give it up and have them whitewashed. I wish to say I am not ashamed of anything whatever that I do, and I don't feel that smoking makes me ashamed, and therefore I mean to smoke to the glory of God. And there's a little background on Charles Spurgeon. The Prince of Preachers. So let's go ahead and get into our reading of the book of Matthew. We'll be reading through chapter 1 today. And just to let you know, I'm reading the ESV, the English Standard Version. So I'll give you just a brief introduction to the book that comes from the uh, English Standard Version. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah. The account alternates between Jesus' activities of healing and casting out demons, and major blocks of his teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, the Parables of the Kingdom, chapter 13, and the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 through 25. The Sermon on the Mount includes the Beatitudes, chapter 5, three through 12, and the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, 5 through 15. The book closes with the Great Commission, chapter 28, 18-20. A recurring theme is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, culminating in his pronouncement of seven woes upon them, chapter 23. As do all four gospel accounts, Matthew focuses on Christ's three-year ministry and his death and resurrection. Matthew probably wrote his gospel in the 50s or 60s A.D., and then here's a little quote from Spurgeon uh, about Matthew. The father revealed himself not to the eyes as the spirit did, but to the ears and the words he spoke clearly indicated that it was God, the father bearing witness to his beloved son. The entrance of Christ into his public ministry on earth was the chosen opportunity for the public manifestation of the intimate union between God, the father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And with that, we'll get right into chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezrod the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of mathan and mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to, to Joseph, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Spurgeon comments here on the, the uh previous verse, verse 21. He says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus was divinely ordered and explained. According to the text, an angel from the Lord declared that his name would be Jesus. It is a name that, like the one who bears it, has come down from heaven. Our Lord has other names of office and relationship, but this is especially and peculiarly his own personal name. God the Father gave him this name. The Holy Spirit explains the name, For he tells us the reason for the name of Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Savior is the meaning of the name, but it has a fuller sense hidden within. For in its Hebrew form, it means the salvation of the Lord, or the Lord of salvation, or the Savior. The angel interprets it as, he will save. The divine name, the incommunicable title of the Most High God, is contained in Joshua, the Hebrew form of Jesus, so that in full the name means Jehovah Savior, and in brief it signifies Savior. It's given to our Lord because He saves, not according to any temporary and common salvation from enemies and troubles, but He saves from spiritual enemies and especially from sins. Joshua of old was a savior, Gideon was a savior, David was a savior, but the title is given to our Lord above all others because he is a savior in a sense in which no one else is or can be. He saves his people from their sins. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my, my, not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. And not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. And not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. And we continue back in Matthew with verse 22. All this took place that's the end of this week's reading of the book of Matthew. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to this week's cigar and also treats and truth ministry where you can get involved in helping to spread the gospel to and be a blessing to the homeless. Groundworks ministries for daily Bible studies and devotionals and the burning bush merchandise store where you can pick up some items to help spread the word about the show. And I'd appreciate it if you would tell your friends. So until next week, Have a great day, have a great cigar, and God bless.